Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and pitchers and catchers have reported. How about that, folks? Baseball is right around the corner. It doesn't feel like it when I look out the window here in Chicago and see snow on the ground, but my thoughts are never far from baseball, and they are really turning to the national pastime as spring training is getting underway. And what a great guest I have for you guys today. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time, so let's jump right to it. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, one of my favorite baseball writers, Mr. Rob Nyer. Rob, how are you? I'm well, thanks for having me. Well, pleasure to have you on the podcast, and since uh, my uh, trade is 1970 stuff, I see that you were born in 66, which sort of puts you at the uh, perfect age to have experienced the 70s as a wide-eyed kid and adolescent. Uh, when did you fall in love with baseball, and who were your favorite players from the from the 1970s era? Well, you know, it's funny, I, I sometimes forget this, but because I was, I became such a huge Royals fan um, in the in the mid to late seventies. Uh, but my first, the first baseball player that I ever really loved was Rod Carew, and mostly because I was at an age. This is before I had a favorite team, where like you know, like a lot of kids, I just fixated on the most famous player. And in nineteen seventy five, seventy six, seventy seven. Uh, there weren't that many players more famous than Crew, and I think what year was he? Did he hit three eighty eight? Was that seventy seven? That was seventy seven. Yeah, that was sort of the the peak. Um, and even though by then I had become a big Royals fan, I was also still a a big Rod Crew fan. In fact, I remember I think it was the sixth grade, which would have been nineteen seventy seven, the nineteen seventy seven season, or the end of the seventy seven season, I guess, um, uh, maybe seventy eight. We had to. Um, we had a class project where we had to we, we had a silhouette of our heads with an overhead projector, and then we had to fill that silhouette in with 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 photos, uh, sort of, sort of describe who we were, what our hobbies were, what we were passionate about. Although I'm sure our teacher didn't put it that way. And all I remember about mine is that it was dominated by a picture from Sports Illustrated of Rod Carew. Uh, so he was he was my the, the first guy that I really sort of obsessed over and in baseball i had football heroes before that fran tarkington especially but but he was my first big baseball guy did you imitate the batting stance i mean that's mandatory if you're a Carew fan right you got to get that i don't remember if i did or not you know it's funny the thing is i wouldn't have seen him play very often right right because i was in the kansas city area at that point and aside from an all-star game now granted if i had wanted to look hard enough i could have probably watched him on this weekend baseball, a really hyper-focus on the All-Star game, but as you know, this was before anybody really had VCRs. They showed your big shot at a highlight was maybe 30 seconds on the local TV sports news. That was it. Uh, the Twins were never in the postseason, so I knew I knew Joe Morgan's batting style, which of course is famous for the, the, the chicken wing thing he did. I knew, you know, I, I have in my mind's eye, I can could easily see even at that point i could see joe morgan i could see pete rose in my head because i'd see reggie jackson i'd seen them on tv so often but rod crew i 
barely saw. I, I knew Rod Carew basically from from reading about him in the newspaper and in Sports Illustrated. So anybody who's read your work through the years, and I'm sure that many of my listeners have, knows that a very passionate Royals fan, and you used to have the blog with Randy Giserli, uh Robin Ranney on the Royals, which I read all the time through that dark period of Kansas City baseball history. Uh, even though I wasn't a Royals fan, I commiserated with you guys uh, as I read that blog. Are, are you still a Royals fan? What's what's the status here? I'm not, and I wish. <laughs> obviously, I wish I were because I would have enjoyed the hell out of those two World Series they were in. They lost me <clears throat> at some point. I don't remember. I can I can never quite pin down which year it was without looking it up. But there was a year. I want to say it was 2005 or six. I could be wrong. Where, when they were in first place at the All Star break by a lot, they had a, I think it was a seven or seven and a half game lead over the second place team. I think it was, I think the Rangers were in second and the Twins were right behind them, as I recall. Well, it would have been the Rangers, right? Because that, 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 we had three divisions by then. But anyway, the, the, I remember the Twins were, were either in second or third place. The Royals were in first, had a huge lead. And, uh, it was a fun team. Jose Lima was, had the whole Lima time thing going. And I thought this was the team that was they were this, they were going to do it. I mean, teams with seven and a half game leads in mid July typically don't 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 blow those leads, but they did. And they blew it pretty badly. I mean, by the end of the season, they were they were six and a half or seven and a half games out of first place because the Twins played so well uh, down the stretch. Um, I was, but I was following them religiously that season. It was another season or two, I think, in, in, before I stopped. Um, really paying attention because after that point, even though I had left the Midwest and moved out to the, here to the Northwest uh, many years before, um, I, I still watched them all the time um, on TV whenever I could. Um, and I was still writing with Rob and Randy on the Royals with Randy, as you said. And um, but after after that season, things just evolved so they became so bad again so quickly. I just wasn't having any fun. Um, I think that if I had remained in Kansas City, I think the the gravitational pull of having my favorite team be so close would have kept me with them. But being so far away, um, I think it just it made it easier. And, and also, and this was really the biggest reason. It wasn't because they were bad. It was because they they the team was run in a way that was so antithetical to everything that I believed at that point, and still do for the most part. That's what made them so frustrating, not not the wins and losses, but the way they were losing so many games. Um, so I, I never made a decision. I, I've never made a decision about a sports team in my life. It just happens. It just so happened. I, I realized, and I, and I thought that I didn't know what would happen when – if and when they ever got back to the postseason. So when they actually did that in 2014, um, I I was fascinated. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know how I would feel about that. And it turned out I didn't really feel anything, and I was disappointed by that. Being a fan of a team is fun. It it hurts, but that only sets you up for the the thrills when, when things get turned around, as any... Indians fan or Cubs fan will, or Red Sox fan will tell you it, it. For most fans, 
it's all, it's all worth it eventually. I mean, if you look at if you're a Cubs fan, you have to wait a hundred years, maybe not so much, <laughs> right? Uh, because you don't ever get it. But you know, Royals fans, they got like me who were there in '85. If they hung around, they got it again. Um, all those decades later, and I didn't get to have that feeling. The only time it, I really felt like a fan was in Game Seven of the World Series that they lost, when it looked like Alex Gordon might might score the the tying run in the ninth inning, and I sort of stood up and yelled. But I don't even know if I was thrilled because it was the Royals or because it was a tremendous thing to watch, just as a, a baseball fan. So. Long answer to your question, I'm not a fan anymore. I still think fondly about the teams that I grew up with, but uh, I don't I don't live and die with the Royals at all uh, the way I used to. You know, it's funny. Ranny is actually my dermatologist. And when <laughs> I, did I was, not know that. Yeah, I was in the office recently, and right there on the wall, he's got the, the World Series stuff, so he, he had his uh, payoff for the years of Yeah, he never suffering. lost it. I, I, I envy him. <laughs> Yeah, all credit to him, but it is but it is true that you can only be bad for so long before even passionate fans start to lose the connection for whatever reason. And and one of the things that you mentioned is how that team was run, and they certainly were behind the curve sabermetrically, probably to that's probably about as kindly as you can put it, in fact. And one thing I want to ask you here is how you got into this. And anybody who knows your story probably already knows this, but for the sake of the listeners who, who may not, you're obviously one of the most read and, I think, influential in many ways baseball writers of the last 20 years. The question that people frequently ask you, and I've seen different interviews where people have asked you this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, is how did you break in? Well, it, it, I was incredibly lucky. And a lot of, I think most people who are realistic about success, and a lot of people aren't realistic, but people who are acknowledge that fortune plays a role. It, it has to play a role. Even if it's just that your, you know, your father was in the business and got you in, in, that was fortune. Most of us have some great stroke of luck or strokes of luck at some point, but just because there's so much, there are so many people who want to do what we do, um, and we're not necessarily smarter or better writers than all the people who don't make it. That helps if you are, but it doesn't. There, there aren't any guarantees. Um, so I was incredibly fortunate. Um, and I could start with my mother encouraging me to read and write when I was a kid, but skipping ahead to the to the more interesting part of the story, probably. I was obsessed with baseball um, because of the Royals, basically. I could have gone various places to, to college. I went to the University of Kansas. I walked into a bookstore on campus within a week or two of, of arriving, and... I saw this book on the shelf. It was the Bill James Baseball Abstract, 1984. I'd never heard of this guy before. If I had, I'd forgotten him. He'd been profiled in Sports Illustrated. But I'd, I didn't know who Bill James was. I picked up the book. I knew immediately that I had to read this book. I bought it. I took it home. I read it within a couple of days, probably spent an entire weekend devouring it. And I knew that this was... Uh, the way I wanted to think about baseball. Uh, fast forward four years, and I'm a college dropout, and all of a sudden um, I find out that 
Bill was looking for an assistant, and a research assistant. Unbeknownst to me, I knew Bill lived in Kansas. I didn't know he lived basically 45 minutes away from from Lawrence, Kansas, which is where I was had gone to school. And I think that, you know, I applied for the job to work for Bill, and I think that being so close helped me. You know, no, Bill knew he wouldn't have to pay to move somebody from, you know, Maine or Texas or somewhere. I was right there, and, uh, you know, Bill liked me enough to hire me, and that's, everything's followed from that. But if I had been going to school anywhere else, I wouldn't have known about the job. Um, if uh, Bill probably wouldn't have hired me if I had been anywhere else. So, uh, and of course, I was just lucky that Bill Bill gave me a chance. I mean, I, I had no qualifications. I'd never written anything. Um, as I said, I was a college dropout, which I told Bill, um, and he hired me anyway. So uh, it, that was, you know, I still remember very vividly the night that, that Bill called me and offered me the job. If, if anyone had asked me three months before then, or three years before then, if you could do one thing in the whole world, what would your, because I had, I had no aspirations. That's probably part of the reason I dropped out of college. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but if someone had asked me before, what, if you could pick one job, what would it be? I literally would have said, I would like to work for Bill James. And then I did. I mean, wow. what are the, how lucky do you have to be to imagine your ideal job and then have it essentially handed to you after doing nothing to earn that job? That's what I did. That's amazing. And, and you know, listening to you describe your experience with discovering the baseball abstract in 1984. That was me in 1986. Same mm-hmm. thing, probably a lot of us, right, around the country picking this up for the first time and thinking, what is this interesting book here? And it it really changed, or at least it was the seed of change, I think, for so many of us in terms of the way that we view the game. Now, Bill, Bill's the father of Sabermetrics. He's, uh, he's a guy who... Uh, Probably doesn't suffer fools terribly gladly. What's it like working for Bill James? I mean, because Bill's a guy that I hugely admire. I've never, I've never had any real direct contact with him. I think I've conversed with him a couple of times on his website. But uh, I'd be intimidated as heck. I think, particularly as a young guy, uh, being around Bill. What was that experience like? Well, I, I was deathly afraid. Um, not really so much of. Bill, but of getting fired, because I was routinely incompetent. I mean, there were some things I was good at, and there were some things I was lousy at, and and Bill, any number of times, probably was thinking, why do I keep this guy around? Because um, I really didn't know what I was doing a lot of the time. I think I got better, but uh, the fact that I was able to last for four years was, was sort of an upset, I think. Um, so it was, a, it was scary working for Bill, um, but he was also... Yeah, you know, we got to lunch and talk about baseball. We talk about his kids. Um, you know, he was when he wasn't in the middle of a book crunch, which was a few months every year. Um, he was great, uh, and I still remember any number of individual conversations that we had about various things, and not just baseball. Different, you know, uh, you know does God exist? Is capital punishment uh, is that a good thing? I mean, I, I remember Bill's take on these things. Because he, 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 Bill is, if nothing else, and there are lots of other things, but Bill is an original thinker. Bill doesn't like to say anything or write anything unless it's interesting. And by interesting, I mean it's not the same take that everyone else has. I think sometimes that gets him in trouble. 
being an iconoclast or having a iconoclastic tendencies is, you know, that's a tough burden because sometimes the conventional wisdom is actually correct. Or even if it's not correct, sometimes we don't know, um, people don't want to hear the non-conventional right. wisdom. And, uh, you know, Bill's fortunate at this point. He, he can pretty much say or write anything he likes. He doesn't have to worry about making a living. And, and didn't when I worked for him. Um, but, um, you know, I just, it was always interesting being around Bill. And he was great to work for most of the time. Bill, Bill would, have, would certainly admit that he's not what wasn't and isn't always the easiest guy to get along with, although I will say that he is much easier to get along with, much more personable today than he was when I worked for him. That was quite a long time ago, 20, more than 25 years ago. He, I think that, I don't want to use the word matured, but Bill has certainly softened, right? We're probably, probably not, he's, I think he's mellowed. Yeah. And maybe that's just getting older. Maybe that's having three kids, and Bill's always been a, has doted on his kids. I've been around his, I spent a lot of time with his kids when I was, when I worked for Bill, two of them anyway. And, and, uh, Bill, Bill's a tremendously affectionate, uh, proud father. And so, you know, he, he, he is not necessarily, when we read people, it's funny, I've been reading Bill Simmons' basketball book for um, just lately, and Bill James and Bill Simmons, I think both, when you read them, they, their writing is so accessible, and they write with such sort of, a, with, with a, a personal sort of, of tone that you feel like you know the person. And to some degree, that's true. Um, it, it is a window into who they are. But of course, it's just a window into part of them, not all of them. And I'm sure that they're, I'm sure that Bill Simmons has untold pools of depth and knowledge and, and, and emotion that we, we, we don't even get hints of in his, his basketball writing. And I think that Bill's the same way. So 1996, you are hired to start writing for, for ESPN.com. And for 15 years, you churned out an incredible amount of content for them. I read probably 80% of it through those years. And I think it's fair to say that for a good while, you were probably the mainstream baseball writer that had the most sabermetric bent. As a result of that, I think you got a lot of arrows sent your way. Uh, from people who uh, were disbelieving or hesitant to uh, leave behind some of the some of the thoughts about baseball that they they held uh, near to their hearts, was that was that frustrating? Because I can particularly remember reading you in the late '90s, you know, just right after the the, the turn of the uh, decade there into the early 2000s, when uh, it was almost a for some people kind of a shoot the messenger kind of deal because you're talking about things that things that really aren't that controversial anymore you're talking about hey it might be helpful to draw some walks you know things like that and some people really were resistant to having their ideas about baseball you know nudged at a little bit was that something for you that was ever annoying the the pushback that you got on things that you you felt were just true about the game i i don't think it was Annoying. It, there were times when my feelings were hurt, uh, when people didn't like me because of what I'd written. But 
and I, I I can't tell you if I was self-aware enough to to understand this at that time. I don't remember. I can tell you now because I remember what I was writing, at least the out, vague outlines of what I was writing, that I wrote things without a care about whether people would like me or not. Um, it didn't occur to me as I was writing. All I cared about was writing what, what was in my head and one, wanting readers to enjoy it. And I was rough on some people. I mean, uh, I, I can tell you, I, I don't know if I've told this story or not, probably at some point, but I had a call back in 2000, I think, winter of, might have been the winter of 2000, 2001, from the uh, head of media relations with the, the Tampa Bay Devil, then Devil Rays. He said he wanted my phone number, um, or he wanted, he wanted to know when I would be free. And I get a call that later that day from, from Chuck Lamar, who was the GM of the, of, of the Rays. Sure. Uh, and I had ripped the Rays up and down for various things that they had done. And you go back and think about the the Greg Vaughn contract and the Jose Canseco contract. And basically, Lamar asked me flat out immediately, have I done something to offend you personally? Uh, he took it personally, what I had written. It never occurred to me that a GM would care. What I, uh, what I, what, what I always, what I thought about, what I would, ho- what I hoped for was that the people I wrote about did not read me. I'm not one of those hard-bitten journalists that you read about sometimes where they, they actually are hoping that they're going to make somebody mad. Right, you're not Dick um, Young or somebody like that, right? That's right. Um, and look, there's a place, if you're a political writer, you probably want the politicians to be angry with you. But I never had that sort of feeling about baseball people. I just assumed that they weren't reading me. Um, and, and then when I realized that some of them were, I wished that they, they wouldn't. Because I, I think one is not a kinder writer, but probably a better writer if you don't think about the people you're writing about, especially if they're in the public sphere. You know, I think that if you're writing about a, a college sophomore playing basketball, there's a different standard than when you're writing about a, a, a grown man running a baseball team. You know, I got a nasty call from from Bud Selig a couple of years after that. Uh, that wasn't any fun either. I, I, I've never enjoyed that sort of thing. But you know, when I think back, when I think about it now, I don't blame these people for being offended. I did write, and I wouldn't say it was mean spirited, and because I wasn't hoping to hurt anyone, but I certainly wasn't careful with my words, um, and. Uh, there was also the fact that, you know, you, you, getting back to your, your question, sure, there was pushback, but I also got to spend hours talking to Billy Bean on the phone because I was on his side. And that was incredibly fun, just talking about baseball for, for an hour here there with Billy Bean. Haven't done that in a while, but it, but it, it happened uh, a number of times back in the basically Moneyball era. Um, and, you know, I've made so many, I wouldn't want to say good friends, but I've certainly had a lot of tremendous conversations with people um, over the years, baseball people, um, who, you know, even if they weren't weren't on my side per se, um, they were certainly willing to listen. And I don't have all those conversations, I don't have those relationships if I'd been writing the same things everyone else, I'd have different relationships, no question. You know, look, Jason Stark and 
and Tom Verducci and all the more successful writers than I have more friends, more great conversations than I've ever had, but uh, it could have been zero easily. And I got to have a lot of tremendous experiences because of the sort of writer that I was. So I certainly can't look back with any real regrets. I do wish I hadn't hurt Chuck Lamar's feelings because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But but uh, otherwise, uh, I, I don't have any complaints. I want to go back to, I believe, the first Bill James book that you contributed to, which I think was uh, the the baseball book, uh, the, fir- right. the first of his baseball books. I think there were three of them. But yep. this would have been 1990, and you researched for him, and I know that you wrote some of these as well, what, uh, what were called tracers. And ultimately, it wound up being the inspiration, I think, to a large extent for one of your books, which uh, That's right. which we'll talk about as well, and feel free to talk about that also. I've got to ask you about these tracers, because basically what you're doing is taking stories that people tell about what happened back in the good old days, and then trying to pin down, where did this happen? What were the circumstances? Is it accurate? Did it happen? Did it happen the way that the person said that it happened? And I'm a college professor by day, and one of the things that we cover in my sociology classes are urban legends. And I sort of learned through the years to be highly skeptical of everything. Somebody would come to me and they would say, hey, is this true? And I got really good at debunking these things. And But also, but the downside of that is, is whenever you hear something, sort of like, I'm also thinking in the back of my mind, yeah, that's bullshit, probably. Tell us about Tracers, the fun that you've had researching these things, and I don't know, do you get jaded after you, after you trace enough stories and find out that uh, they're full of half-truths and zero-truths? First of all, no, never, never jaded, not for a second. Um, and I, that was, of all the things that I did for, when I worked for Bill, I, was, I worked for him for four years. And I babysat the kids, I paid the bills, I bought books for his library, um, wrote various drafts and essays and whatnot. Um, the most fun I had was coming up with plans and then following through on those plans to research those stories, I think it just, it, it really appeals to um, my nature. I like having a very defined task. Uh, and tracers are perfect for that because you know, okay, this, if this happened, it happened in this year or this year or this year. It has to have. And it happened in one of these games, if it happened in one of those years. Now just go check. That's That's perfect for me, which is you know, again, why probably why he wanted to turn turn the idea into a book with with Bill's blessings. But no, never jaded because first of all, you don't know why the stories became what they became. If they didn't happen the way they were told, I think often it's a obviously just a case of failing memory. That happens to all of us. Um, I, you know, I've, I'm sure I've told you two or three things in this in our talk that didn't happen the way I remember them. I'm going to trace them all, Rob, when, people, we're, when we're done. <laughs> I would love to see that. People, most people have no idea about just how shaky, how unreliable memory really is. But if you study it at all, you, you find out we don't just take a memory. I know, I'm sure you know this. We don't, something doesn't happen to us, and then it goes into a little box in our brain and sits there for, for the next 30 or 40 years. It doesn't work that way. Right. 
um, at all. We create new memories on top of the old ones all the time, and then they get changed, like a game of telephone in your head. So some things, I, you know, I'll go to my grave believing what I think happened when Bill called and offered me uh, the, the chance to work with him. But I don't know if it's true or not. I just it's, it's what I think happened, and we don't we when we tell stories to people, we can't every time say, "Well, this is how I remember it." It might not have. Nobody wants to hear that. You tell them what you remember, and, and we well, feel that's good enough. It's and, true. Um, it's true. And then they're also, you know, in baseball, a lot of the stories, they are fabricated. Because in the old days, my, my assumption is that we were better storytellers than we are now. Uh, because we had to be. We didn't have, you know, in the old days, they didn't have television. They, they didn't have as much. They didn't have radio. I mean, they had radio, but they didn't have radio until the 1930s, basically, or 20s, right. in terms of people going on the radio. And so they had to entertain themselves. And the banquet there, circuit, there right? I mean... That's right, exactly. And then the players, as you know, the players and the umpires and the managers, they had, they had a name for it. It's called the Rubber Chicken Circuit. And they would go out in the off-season, do banquets, Elks Club, whatever it was, and get up for half an hour, an hour, and tell stories. And if I had to change a few details and make this a better story, why would I not do that? So that's where a lot of these stories come from, is guys telling stories because it's a great story, and if we're, a few details are off, and that doesn't bother me at all. And See, I'm going I'm, to stop you here, and I'm going to ask you a question. I want your advice. I'm currently working on a book about baseball in the 1970s. It's an oral history. So I've talked to close to 100 players at this point. And, of course, some of the stories that you get, there's a part of you that thinks in your mind, okay, it, the truth cannot possibly be as good as this story. But as somebody who's wanting to churn out a book that people are going, going to enjoy, there's part of you that thinks, well, this is the account that this individual gave me. So, uh, you know, and it's not, uh, it's not scandalous, so maybe just let the legend grow. Jay Johnstone, in particular, told me a story about Dick Allen that's hilarious. And not d particularly damning to Dick Allen, but it's, it's hilarious, entertaining, and deep down within myself, I think it's probably 80% false. How do you handle that? How do you handle that as a chronicler of uh, history? Well, I, I, I've never been in that position. I think it's a tough one. I, I really do. I think it depends on... You have to have a very good idea for what you want your book to be. And it, 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 look, there is some value to stories like that because even if the details are wrong, they probably, there's probably a kernel there, right? They, it gives us an idea of what at least Jay Johnstone thought about Dick Allen and probably other players as well. But maybe there's a way to finesse it in the introduction where you just say, these are the stories that, as they were told to me, I have not fact-checked them, or if I have, I'm not going to tell you. Um, <laughs> feel free, yeah. go for it. Uh, you can do what you can do. What um, Larry Ritter did in the Glory of Their Times, and uh, you probably you probably recall there's a chapter about Ritter in in my book about stories, and and he changed a few details. It's funny because he went out of his way after the book was published and was a huge success to say to talk about how incredibly accurate all these players' memories were. <laughs> and they weren't at all. I mean, yes, they got some details right, probably most of the details right, but they also got a lot of them wrong. And Ritter fixed some of those when he could, and some of them he just he probably couldn't fix reasonably without making huge changes, so he just left them. Um, 
nobody's ever, as far as I know, nobody's ever held that against him. I think that when it's oral history, not to suggest that, that we forget about the truth, but it's the stories themselves that have to, to always be paramount in oral history. Um, so my inclination would be to let Johnstone have his say and maybe clean up, clean up around, uh, around the edges a little bit if you have to, but um, I want to hear Jay Johnstone telling stories. I don't really, I, I'd, I'd let somebody else check the facts. I think that's good advice. I'll follow that. I, I, you, so many of your books, I've read all your books, you, six up until this point, correct? That's correct. And I, I've read all of them, and I'm looking on my shelf here right now, and I see the Nyer James Guide to Pictures, which is tremendous. Um, the, your series of big books, the Big Book of Baseball Lineups, the Big Book of Baseball Blunders, and the Big Book of Baseball Legends, which we were just alluding to with the Tracers. I'm not going to ask you to pick between your books, but in terms of the big books, uh, that series, which I, which I loved, and I, I go back and and read through those again every every few years. Which one of those was the most fun to write? I would say that the the Tracers book, the, the Legends, was the I enjoyed that the most. I think because you know it had that connection to to my time with Bill. Uh, I got to write a couple of of longer essays. A lot of it is just basically Tracers. Here's a story. Let's find out if it happened. But I also got to, you know I wrote the the chapter on. Larry Ritter, I don't think anyone, to my knowledge, no one has ever looked at that book in the way I looked at it. Comparing, for example, not, not just tracking down the facts of the stories, I just did a couple of those maybe, but comparing what's in the book to what's in the actual interviews. I'd never seen anyone do that before. And that was tremendously interesting for me, to see how Ritter had massaged the interviews. Uh, that's another thing that he said. He not he not he didn't say just he didn't say merely that uh, the players had tremendous memories and he didn't have to fix anything. He said that the the interviews in the book were essentially transcriptions from what the players had said, unedited essentially, and that wasn't true at all. He edited them for clarity. He edited them for style. He turned these guys into tremendously tremendous storytellers, even better than they were in real life, and I, I was fascinated by that. I wrote a long essay about the Babe Ruth's called Shot. That was a lot of fun, um, trying to track down as many um, first-hand accounts as I could. I'd never seen anyone do that before. And Okay, um, and for people who haven't read this, who don't know, what's what's the skinny on Babe Ruth's called Shot? Give them a taste of uh, what to expect if they get this book. Well, um, I think that for me, what it came down to was, I don't have it in front of me, what it came down to was, and this is really, I think, if, if you thought about it with any sort of objective analysis, you would guess this is the case. He did something before he hit the home run. He didn't do what he does in, say, the Babe Ruth story starring William Bendix. He didn't point, use his bat and point to a certain spot and hit a home run. But he certainly was was gesticulating. He was certainly interacting with the Cubs bench and perhaps Charlie Root, the pitcher, while all this was going on. So it was incredibly dramatic. It's like a lot of the stories that, that, we're, that we're talking about. Something happened. Something really interesting happened. Something dramatic happened. It just was turned into something even more interesting and more dramatic um, as the story was later retold, which is, of course, what we do. 
I'm glad that the Babe Ruth called shot story exists. You know, if I were making a movie about Babe Ruth, I would probably try to tell the story as it really happened. But that's frankly not what most people want to see. Most people want to see it the way it is in the movies that, are, that have been made. Um, my book is not for everybody. A lot of people would prefer just to have the, the stories as they were told. And, forget, and, I, and I'm okay with that. I understand that. It's just, it's just not who I am. Rob, you're obviously a great student of baseball history. And I want to ask you about the modern game and kind of where we are right now in terms of baseball strategy and in the direction that the game has taken as an on-field product. Um, and I find it interesting because I feel like we're in an era right now where strategy is is dictated more by by solid data than ever before in the history of the game and yet a lot of people and perhaps myself included to some extent feel like the game is becoming somewhat less pleasing just from an aesthetic standpoint you know even if it is efficient uh, from a winning baseball game standpoint, which obviously is what the people in the game are, are trying to accomplish. But I'm talking about the, the three t- true outcomes kind of baseball that we're seeing, particularly the way that s- strikeouts continue their their upward uh, trajectory. And obviously this last season we had so many home runs, and I don't know how or if the ball was a factor in that. What do you think of just the product on the field today Speaking strictly in an entertainment sense. Well, I have to offer a, a, a two-part answer, and the first part's going to be quick. The first part is, I don't know what the fans want. Because we don't have any... The only data we have is pretty positive. Uh, attendance is solid. It doesn't go up much from year to year, but in part that's because they keep building smaller ballparks. You know, the attendance would be a bit higher if the Yankees had a 60,000-seat ballpark instead of a 42 or whatever, 45,000-seat ballpark. So attendance is, you could argue, artificially low. We know the revenues are way up thanks to TV contracts and, and MLB's advanced media division. They're, they're making tons of money. So it's hard to argue that the sport has an aesthetic problem if we just look at those numbers. And in fact, Rob, Rob Manford, the commissioner, said a few months ago that based on what their information, fans, fans enjoy strikeouts and home runs. Now, frankly, I'm skeptical when I hear that. You know, you, you would have, we would want to see the actual questions on this poll or this focus group, assuming that he's telling the truth and that they even have this data before we bought into that. But that's what he says. And I don't know that it's not true. Now, Part B is just me speaking as a fan and someone who grew up in the 70s and the 80s. I miss stolen bases. I miss players I making plays in the field. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's difficult for us to, with our naked eye, if you just watch 10 games, you might not even say, hey, they aren't stealing as many bases as they used to. Our brains really aren't good at that sort of thing. But you and I are, are aware, we know the statistics. So whether we see with our eyes or not, we know with our brains that that deals and defense have been vastly devalued since the 1970s and 80s, um, and prior to that as well. I think that aesthetically speaking, 
you would never, if you were designing a, a sport, you would never design it to be dominated by just the pitcher and the hitter. You'd want to see all 10 players on the field with a pretty decent chance of, of, of being active from, from play to play, and we're losing that. And I don't know if, if you ever reach a point where the fans decide, I'm not going to go watch baseball anymore because there are too many strikeouts and home runs. Maybe that's not an issue for the general population. It, it is an issue for me, I think, just because I know what's happening. And it's frustrating to see the, the strikeout rates go up and up and the home runs go up and up and, and a lot of interesting things going down and down. Yeah, no, I agree I agree with you. I wonder if some point the ebb and flow is going to produce a Rod Carew or Tony Gwynn type hitter. I mean, obviously, Rod Carew's and Tony Gwynn's don't grow on trees. But, you know, guys who are looking to go the other way, guys who aren't, aren't trying to hit 20-plus home runs, who are trying to hit 300. I don't know what happens. And then we have the slick balls in the World Series. What, do you, Rob, do you have any inside info on those World Series <laughs> balls and what happens? I, I don't. I, I tend to be skeptical about those sorts of things because there are – so there have been so many stories over the decades about the baseballs being different, whether it was a, you know the, they looked different or they felt different or whatever it might be, and I think that we humans have a tendency to see patterns where they don't exist to explain things. I, I don't think there's any much debate about that as a as a phenomenon. So if the pitchers struggle, the first thing you're going to think of is the baseballs, and especially with with considering that. There was there was already so much talk about the baseballs being pr- probably juiced based on the numbers, all the numbers that we can come up with. Various really smart people have looked at this in various ways. The baseballs are livelier that now than they were in the first half of I believe 2015 is the cutoff point, about the halfway point that season. Yeah, this this is an all launch angle. What we saw oh, last gosh, year. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean uh, Rob Manford because he wants to deflect attention from the baseballs because he doesn't want to deal with that question in a meaningful way, likes to bring up launch angles and new sorts of bats. And the problem with all of those explanations, the obvious, overwhelming problem with those explanations is that they wouldn't have cha- turned around, changed all of a sudden in the middle of 2015. You know, yes, of course, launch angles are different now than they were three years ago. A little bit. Yes, players using slightly different sorts of bats. Not a lot different. But I mean, it's funny. I I found a story in Sporting News the other day. You know, people talk about the bats and how they're now they're designed for power because they have the skinny handles, right, and the big barrels. People were writing that story in the early '50s. That's how far back the bats. The, the bat explanation goes. Um, and I don't think there's anything to it. Not much anyway. A little bit. Maybe, maybe the hickory bats or whatever it is, maybe they're a little bit. But again, that did, nothing changed all of a sudden in the middle of 2015. It almost has to have been some sort of artificial change that was made around baseball and launch angle ain't it. You can come up with a lot of little things that might explain 10% of the difference, but uh, good luck finding the other 90% without talking about the baseballs. Well, Rob, I've enjoyed our conversation, and it's really a thrill anytime that you get a chance to talk to somebody whose work you you really admire. And I love your books, and 
we had a little bit of a conversation here before we began taping, and you gave me what I certainly take as some very good news, because you are at work right now on your first book in some time. Tell me what this thing's about, what you're at work on, and when we can look forward to, to this thing seeing the light of day, because it, it's been a while since I've had a chance to sit down and devour uh, some uh, new work from Rob Nyer. Yeah, it's been a while for me to, to, to write one. It really has. Uh, I, I used to write a book every couple of years, and then I traded in writing columns for, for blogging, and that was a full-time job, which, frankly, writing columns really never was. That was a part-time job, for which I was fortunate enough to get full-time pay, but blogging was a full-time job, so all of a sudden there was just no time to work on books. But now I have time, and this, this project sort of fell into my lap. Somebody came to me, an editor came to me just a couple of months ago and said, I'd love to do something with you, um, and I've had this book um, uh, in my mind for a while, uh, uh, a modern version of Dan Okren's Nine Innings. Uh, oh, which is a terrific book. Yeah, it was one of my favorites. It has been, I've probably read it three or four times. So we, we, it was, this was the fastest I've ever, by far, that I've ever had anything like this come together. I sent him an outline and watched the, the, uh, the, a game that he thought might, might be a good one. And, uh, you know, as you know, but maybe everybody listen doesn't, nine innings and nine innings, Dan Okrent went to an Orioles-Brewers game in 1982 and used that game as a prism through which to examine how baseball was played, both on and off the field, uh, the business side and, and, and also the playing side. And, uh, and so we picked the game in, in September uh, before the postseason, we, we chose the game. Um, it's an A's-Astros game from September, and you know I kind of lucked out, I guess, that the Astros won the World Series. I don't think it's, it, it changes the book a lot, but maybe people will be a little more interested in it. Um, the, the difference between my book and, and Dan's book, aside from the fact that we're quite different writers, is that Dan spent basically three years writing his, and I'm sure he had a job <laughs> otherwise, um, and I'm this is going to be out next fall, so I basically have five months to write this one um but that's you know that's that's all i'm doing right now so the writing's going well i've gotten a lot done already and probably will junk half of what i've written but but i hope some of it's good enough to stay in the book and and uh it should be out next next year in time for the world series all right then two things here that uh, we've got to agree to one when we get the publishing date, you got to let me know so that I can circle it on my calendar because Absolutely. some books are books that you buy the day that you can get your hands on them, and yours is <laughs> going to be one. And two, I want you to come back on the podcast when the book comes out, and we'll talk about it. Well, I would, I would love that, and I'm, I'm, I'll try to slide in some 70s content so it makes, makes a little <laughs> more sense for you. All right, perfect. All right, well, thank you so much, my friend. I wish you all the success with the book. Pleasure talking to you today, and... Uh, look forward to all the things that you're going to have going on in the future. Well, it's my pleasure. And I, I did want to say uh, that uh, every tweet of yours is a tiny little jewel, um, <laughs> well, which you, I sir. appreciate immensely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It means a lot. When somebody that uh, you like their work likes what you do, well, it's it's all the more satisfying. So thank you for that. My pleasure. My thanks again to Rob Nyer for coming on the show today. If you've never read any of his books... I'd highly recommend that you check out any of his big book series. Really good stuff. And it sounds like he's got another good one on the way right now. It's It's been a while since uh, uh, Rob has put a new book out, as he mentioned. So I can't wait for that. Uh, big thanks to Rob. 
my guest next time. And okay, guys, I've I've got to stop here for a second and tell you exactly how excited I am about this guest because most of you know that I am a huge freak for uniforms and logos, particularly of the 1970s and 80s. And my guest on the upcoming episode is Peter Good. I don't know if that name means anything to you or not, but I can tell you that he is significant because he's the man, dare I say, the creative genius behind the Hartford Whalers logo. And that's an all-timer in my book. The W, the tail fan, the H that comes out of the negative space, it's just a masterpiece. So I'm going to have Peter Good on the podcast. We're going to talk about how he was contracted by the Whalers to be the designer of the logo, coming up with the visual identity of the Whalers, and how ultimately he made history with what has become one of the iconic logos, I think, in the history of professional sports. So be sure to join me next time when my guest is Peter Good. And until then, this is Ricky Cobb reminding you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.